Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tomorrow, in what's being described as a fiscal event, Liz Truss's government will reveal its economic plan to fix a country in crisis. Britain on the brink of a recession as deep as the 90s and as long as the 2008 financial crash. There is real fear, 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 anxiety. You know, people are lying in bed at night wondering how they're going to pay their bills. So what can we expect to hear tomorrow? And crucially, will it work? I think that given the commitment that Liz Truss has to being a low-tax prime minister, coupled with the fact that she is taking on a massive financial burden, which is the energy crisis, it leaves you with a very big question of how the hell do we pay this back if it's not with more taxes? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, a beginner's guide to trustonomics. My name's Mehreen Khan. I'm the economics editor at The Times. Mehreen has been watching all of Liz Truss's pronouncements on the economy, both during her campaign and since she came to power to work out what the new government's economic strategy will be. But for the biggest clue to what we'll hear when the new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, stands up at the dispatch box tomorrow, we really need to go back further. We need to go back a decade to September 2012. The country was just recovering from a financial crisis. But until businesses find it easier to borrow money and start hiring, and until people feel confident enough to start spending, some believe a true recovery could take years. The Tory Lib Dem coalition government was still enjoying a honeymoon period when out of the blue, a book, a pamphlet of essays, was published that caused quite a stir. The book is called Britannia Unchained. It's written by, I think it's fair to say, five relatively at that time unknown and young Tory MPs. It's a 150-page sort of libertarian right-wing credo, which is mildly Eurosceptic and sets out, you know, some relatively at that point, I think, radical ideas about what's wrong with the UK, why the UK might be suffering from a form of 
economic and social declinism. And what these five authors tell us is the remedy and the answer to get us out of this, this funk that they think has set in in 2012. Their names were Kwasi Kwarteng, Liz Truss, Priti Patel, Dominic Raab and Chris Skidmore. Firstly, what's inspired the book? Why are they so down on, on the state of Britain and, and, and politics too, I suppose? Well, it's worth going back and trying to remember what was going on in 2012. And at the beginning of the year, the UK had already entered what was called the double dip recession. So we Mm. had managed to grapple our way out of the aftermath of the financial crisis, which hit in 2008 and 2009. The economy had recovered, but then suffered another setback in 2012. As the skies emptied over London, the economic ray of sunshine the government had hoped for simply failed to appear. So the UK is officially back in recession. An economist now looking back would say that that was the result of what was then called the austerity policies of George Osborne, which was to radically shrink public spending, try and repair the public finances after the crisis and get the UK back on a fiscally prudent track. And you also mentioned, Manveen, the coalition, which at that time was completely historic and still is relatively historic because we haven't had such a political experiment like that before. Mm. And because David Cameron was in a coalition and had a junior coalition partner, the Tories were not running the country as they usually do as a majority government. And it created these pockets of space for different segments of the party to become a bit more open and public about their dissent from the policies of the government of the day, because it was not necessarily a pure Tory government. And that's the sort of environment in which this group of five MPs entered Parliament as relatively young, fresh thinkers who had a different vision from that which David Cameron was at that time espousing for the UK. That's so interesting. So David Cameron is sort of seen as having softened the Tory stance a bit by getting into bed with the Lib Dems. And when they published this book, Britannia Unchained, it really did cause a few gasps. You know, it was talked about in the press as representing some of the most right-wing ideas we'd seen in decades. What exactly did it say? What were the big ideas it was trying to put forward? Effectively, the state in the UK is too big. We have a bloated regulatory bureaucratic state, which is holding back the economy, hence the unchained part of trying to get the UK out of the clasps of what it saw was unnecessary regulation. Tax is probably the most important part of the economic weaponry that these MPs want to use to unchain Britain. So to create Mm. a lower tax environment, which means lower regulation for businesses, um, less protection for workers. And it also has a social element. These MPs think that the UK has become, uh, in the words of, of the book, an idle nation, that our employees and workers are sort of obsessed with football and celebrity culture and what they attribute to a new labour way of thinking about how society should be, and that we need to harness a more entrepreneurial, hardworking spirit, which the authors think exists in countries like India or, or Brazil. I listen to debates in the House of Commons. And if you listen to those debates, you would think that Britain was a a little island on the other side of Mars. There's no international context at all. And we're saying, look, we've got to wake up and look around the world. This is Kwasi Kwarteng, the new Chancellor, in an interview back in 2012, when he made it clear that he thought the UK needed to re-evaluate its work ethic. I've been around a Chinese factory, and I can tell you that they time absolutely every single thing you know that you could ever do ever any process and they and they have to do a certain job in an hour and if they do it in 58 minutes they get two free minutes in which they can just sit down and talk to their friend 
So it's a slight hodgepodge of ideas. I think if we had to give it some coherency, I would call it a small state right-wing libertarianism, which is at that point mildly Eurosceptic. Of course, four years later, the UK would leave the EU, but this was not necessarily the engine room of Euroscepticism. It was much more about allowing the free market to be unshackled and allowing capitalism and free market forces to take sway in the economy in something that they thought would get Britain out of what they called a crossroads that they said the economy was then in. I mean, it is fascinating, isn't it? Whenever we get a new prime minister, you're always trying to decode what they really think. But actually, it's all there in this, what is effectively a manifesto. Very little seems to have changed. I mean, moving forward 10 years to now, two of those writers who who might have been unknown backbench MPs at the time are now Liz Truss, the new prime minister, Kwasi Kwarteng, the new chancellor, and they'll be standing up in parliament to lay out their plans for the British economy. How much are you expecting this statement to change government policy and Tory party orthodoxy, really, as we've known it so far? Now that wing of the Tory party is in charge of the government, we're going to see two things, I think, in this mini fiscal statement or mini budget. One of them is going to be very much sticking and adhering to the orthodoxies that were set out in that manifesto. And that Mm. is a low tax economy, the UK becoming a lower tax environment for businesses with less regulation. And that's something that we're going to hear from the Chancellor. But the other main part of what is going to be announced is almost the antithesis of what is in Britannia Unchanged. And that is going to be perhaps more historically significant, one of the biggest interventions in UK economic policy by the state, which is the creation of a price cap, a price freeze on our energy bills. This government is moving immediately to introduce a new energy price guarantee that will give people certainty on energy bills. Something which six months ago, even less would be scarcely believable as a policy that at any Tory government, let alone a libertarian right-wing leaning free market Tory government would have to implement. So we have these two tensions which will be uh, on display. Six weeks ago, when Liz Truss was campaigning to be prime minister, she said there'd be no handouts, which made people assume there would be no help for, for ordinary people. Look, we're still in the leadership contest at the moment. Now, my priority is reducing taxes so people can keep more of their own money at the same time as making sure we boost energy supply. It's wrong to just keep sticking plasters on this problem. This is quite a shift. And I suppose it's just worth remembering that although many of her ideas are set out in Britannia Unchained 10 years ago, probably haven't changed. She's now come to power with a completely different economic backdrop. What is the state of the economy that she and her new chancellor are having to deal with? Liz Truss has inherited an economy which uh, back in 2012, I think, again, would have been something that we would scarcely believe. And that has been driven by perhaps the worst energy crisis that the UK has ever seen in modern times, or at least um, since the 1970s. The energy crisis is also driving one of the worst inflationary spirals we've seen in more than a generation. We have already have double-digit inflation, uh, which has been driven by global gas and oil prices. People's food prices are going up. They're not getting the wage increases that they would need to compensate for the rising cost of living. 
households are due to suffer a real incomes crunch, which is something which has never been recorded in the UK since the post-war era. And that is two consecutive years of falling real incomes. And inflation, you know, it's a very regressive almost tax on people. It is a tax on those who are least able to afford it. It eats into your wages and your salaries and income more generally if you're not compensated. Scared. Uh, worried for my kids, how we're going to manage everything. Um, we've been to four food banks in the last couple of months, which is it's horrible to admit. My TV has been disconnected. My Wi-Fi has been disconnected because I can't afford to pay them. I've already sold everything in my house that's worth anything. So Liz Trust is, is, is confronting uh, a generational crisis. It is a crisis of inflation, which comes not very long after the COVID-19 pandemic. And only two years before that, we had Brexit, which was an incredible rupture in the UK's trading relationship with its biggest partner, the European Union. I think Liz Trust, to her credit, has had to reverse on her former stance of saying, no, I don't believe in handouts for households by giving one of the biggest universal subsidies that we've ever seen, even bigger than that, which we saw in the furlough scheme. We don't know how much it will cost, but a rough estimate would be in the area of around £150 billion. And just, Maureen, going through that, that is presumably the biggest announcement that we'll get. Just breaking it down, I mean, both the words intervention and borrowing, because this will need borrowing to fund it, aren't traditionally loved by the Tory party. Just talk us through how, how we've got here. The idea of a, of a price cap is, is something that has always sort of existed in economic textbooks as a way for usually a government to uh, intervene when there is a period of market failure. So in the traditional libertarian way of thinking about the market, prices are very important because they set a signal. When the price of something becomes too high, it becomes prohibitively expensive, therefore reduces demand for such a good or a service. And then when the demand falls, the price then falls. So there's a natural stabilizing way of thinking about how prices are supposed to work in the market. What's happened is that the market price for gas in particular, which powers most people's electricity in the UK and also in Europe, that price has gone gangbusters. UK households are facing a tripling in their energy bills between April and October, which has been driven by the war in Ukraine, limiting supplies of gas and in an environment where after the pandemic, people's demand for energy is so much higher. And that's been reflected in these, these incredible record price rises. So the government wants to basically subsidise everyone's energy use by saying that as a household, we won't pay more than £2,500. And therefore, whatever the difference is between 2500 and the market rate, that cost will be shouldered by the government. And this potentially exposes the Treasury and the government to an exponentially rising bill for the cost of energy. So even though I gave you the figure of 150 billion, if the trajectory of gas prices keeps continuing at the rate that we've seen over the last month, which is almost nearly doubling every month, there's almost no ceiling that we can put on, on the amount of spending the government may have to do to adhere to the price cap. So borrowing looks like the only major way in which the government can get this money. Another policy we haven't mentioned is a windfall tax. And Liz Truss is committed to not imposing more windfall taxes on the energy sector, on, on North Sea gas producers, because she doesn't believe that's a good way to do policy, which is, is hurting businesses or, or could be exposing them to higher costs. 
So in the absence of new windfall taxes, borrowing is going to have to really pick up a lot of the heavy lifting of the bill that the government now faces. And as you said, that's not something that is popular with most Tories. But I think at this particular juncture, they think it's necessary. And just give us a a sense of the scale of borrowing here. I mean, how long would it take for us to pay that back? I think that given the commitment that Liz Truss has to being a low tax prime minister, coupled with the fact that she is taking on a massive financial burden, which is the energy crisis, it leaves you with a very big question of how the hell do we pay this back if it's not with more taxes? One of the obvious things is massive austerity will have to be done. So again, the small state vision that we see in Britannia Unchanged may have to become a reality to pay back the generational debt that we will inherit during this crisis. Wow. And the other one is, and this is perhaps the more optimistic one, is that if the economy grows and grows very fast, then it will generate a lot of the revenues naturally that the government can then use to pay back its debt. Because quite frankly, we do not yet know. And Liz Truss has not been forced to tell us about what her medium term vision is to pay back all of this money. We are about to spend historic amounts and borrow historic amounts. Are people worried about how it all adds up? The financial markets are very worried about this. We've had a a massive depreciation in the value of the pound relative to other major currencies. And the UK government's borrowing costs are also spiking because foreign investors, people whose job it is to either hold UK assets, are now asking the question of how the hell this is sustainable in the medium term. And their response has been to sell UK assets, which would suggest that they do not have the answers for, um, for the questions that we are posing. That's a very tough course she's going to have to steer. Do we know how she might go about it? Because she's been in the Treasury before. Her big ideas are very much about creating a lower regulatory environment, what some people have disparagingly called Singapore on Thames, as the economic model that is going to drive us to a more sustainable future with sustainable public finances and more growth. And just... You know, we've heard the term Singapore on Thames mentioned a lot. We we heard it quite a bit during the Brexit debate and about what London could look like um, if it was free of many of the the laws and the regulations that that the EU had imposed on Britain. Just talk us through this. If this is sort of the ultimate vision of trussonomics to create a world which is a bit like a Singapore on Thames, what does that actually look like? The UK has the lowest corporate tax rate of the G7, which is the big seven economies in which it's usually grouped under. And it also has among the lowest rates of public investment. So you can already say that despite the fact we have a low tax environment, it has not created the investment that someone like Liz Truss would think those two things are not only correlated, but there's a causation involved. Most countries France, uh, even the United States have promised to raise taxes to be able to pay for the measures that they had to implement during the pandemic. So this is definitely a paradigm shift. One thing we haven't really mentioned so far is Brexit. The UK has decided to take itself out of its biggest trading bloc. It no longer has automatic access to the EU's market. So a company based in the UK will not be able to sell its goods or services into the EU unless there is a different sort of trade arrangement than what we have today. And and Liz Truss has been very hawkish about the relationship with the EU. So there's no silver bullet that's coming uh, in terms of access to the single market. These are all the issues, I think, which are holding back investment in the UK. And they're not necessarily things that are going to be solved by waiving the low tax wand. So 
again, this raises the question as, as to whether this is a viable policy to get the UK back into a higher growth environment. And a lot of people are very sceptical about whether tax is really the thing that is, is holding us back right now. One person who's already voiced his scepticism that tax cuts that benefit the rich would be the answer to our current economic problems is the American president, Joe Biden, who tweeted earlier this week. We've seen time and time again that that trickle down does not work. And by the way, we don't have anything against w wealthy people. You got a great idea, you're gonna go out and make millions of dollars, that's fine. I have no problem with that. But guess what? You gotta pay your fair share. Coming up, Liz Truss has often modeled her photo shoots on Margaret Thatcher, but what about her economics? That's after a quick message from a colleague. I'm Matt Lawton, and I'm the chief sports correspondent at The Times. As sports journalists, it's important that we look beyond what we're seeing on the pitch, look beyond the action, and hold those in power to account. It's essential that we scrutinize, we ask tough questions, we investigate areas where we may believe there's corruption. We can only ask those questions, we can only pursue those kind of stories, thanks to the subscribers at The Times and The Sunday Times. So subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. To understand... You know, the ideas that were first put forward in Britannia Unchained, you probably have to understand the environment that the the young MPs back then, the people running the country now, grew up in. And that really means going back to the last time we had a situation a bit like this and we had a prime minister stepping in amid a massive economic crisis. Just take us back to the 1970s and just remind us a bit about what was happening with the British economy and how how we managed to get out of it back then. 
I think the 1970s was a chastening experience. Uh, some would say even a rather humiliating one. The UK needed a bailout from the then International Monetary Fund because we had a, a, a run on the currency and completely unsustainable public finances. And we also were in an environment where we had incredibly high inflation, around 25-26%. Inflation caused again by a global energy crisis, which was then the oil price spikes uh, of the 70s. The UK was gripped by a very activist labor unions who were demanding very high pay to compensate for high inflation. These men have been out on unofficial strike for the past 10 weeks. And British Leyland's car factory here at Speak hasn't had a TR7 off the production line since last September. So workers were even getting pay rises in the region of 20%, which was matching the then inflation rate, which is not something that's happening today. And this high inflationary environment persisted for most of the decade. It wasn't something that was a two or three year crisis. It had to be solved with what I think Liz Truss and, and the authors of Britannia Unchained called the shock therapy that was Margaret Thatcher, who was elected in 1979 to come and, and sort out the mess by destroying the stranglehold that the unions had on the economy by reforming what was then a sclerotic labor market by then deregulating massive industries and privatizing many of them and that environment of the 1980s i think and the legacy of the 70s is the era in which MPs like Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng had their political awakening. That was mm. the formative moment of their youth when they thought we have a visionary, ideologically driven prime minister that has got the UK and did manage to get the UK out of its funk. To those waiting with bated breath for that favourite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. <laughs> The ladies not for turning. <laughs> and one of the other elements that is very much worth talking about was the discovery of North Sea oil. And it was the 80s and the 90s which then saw massive influx of revenues from the discovery of North Sea oil. And this was a completely transformative element in the industry and the political economy of the UK. At one point during the 80s, I think for the latter part of the decade, the UK was making 10% of its GDP, over £150 billion in revenues every year from the sale of North Sea oil. And it totally yeah. transformed the economy. And it meant that the Thatcherite medicine that had to be taken earlier on in the decade could then be paid for with huge amounts of revenues, which, I mean, ultimately was just a stroke of luck. There wasn't much thinking behind it. We saw throughout her campaign to be Prime Minister, Liz Truss, clearly echoing bits of Margaret Thatcher, whether it was in her dress or, or in her presentation, the way she wanted to be perceived. How do her economic policies compare? She's talked about North Sea Oil and she's talked about fracking. Can we expect a similar turnaround in a few years' time? She adheres very much to the Thatcherite orthodoxies of talking about the small state, talking about individualism, entrepreneurialism, a, a lower regulatory environment to allow free market forces to flourish. The difference is, and we have to stress this, is that the UK is not in the position of the 1980s. There are no low-hanging fruit that she can pick 
like Thatcher could at that point, even though it's very difficult. You mentioned fracking in North Sea oil. One of the big announcements that Liz Truss has already made is that she wants to reverse the ban on fracking, which was placed in the UK in 2019, to be able to allow industries to find shale oil in the UK. And I support fracking in areas where there is local support. And what I want to make sure is a local communities benefit. I think that's very important. And she also wants to keep investments going in the discovery of new North Sea oil fields. There are massive problems with this, particularly because the UK as a country has already said and promised to abide by quite binding climate targets. And the other thing is that there is a lag involved between exploring and investing in shale and North Sea oil and then finding, if you're lucky, the oil and gas, which can then help you become energy independent in the long term. That's a process which I think even in generous time scale would take nearly two decades. Um, wow. So we mentioned the 80s, the first discoveries of North Sea oil in the UK happened in the late 60s. We only benefited a generation later when we started pumping all this stuff out from the North Sea and selling it to the rest of the world. And I think there are huge questions about whether the current conditions of the economy mean that the Thatcherite orthodoxy can work a second time around. Is there a danger with trustonomics that it ends up being a little bit confused and wanting to stick so, so much to the Thatcherite line, wanting to do tax cuts right now, immediately, and at the same time doing massive intervention, it just becomes incoherent. You can't do everything at once without, without actually damaging your own policies. I think what we're seeing is not a purist form of trustonomics. Liz Truss is having to implement, I think, the bulk of her economic orthodoxy and at the same time introduce a huge state intervention. And I think the question is, is how sustainable this is. So we know that the Chancellor will give us a sort of mini fiscal event. He's also due to introduce a budget around November time. And I think it's an interesting question about when Kwasi Kwarteng stands up again in front of MPs to deliver his budget, whether he will have to make those tough trade-offs and actually ditch a lot of the ideology because of the nature of the state intervention, which will mean that tax-cutting policies will not be sustainable for the public finances. He will come under a lot of pressure from the opposition. And I also think from parts of his own party who will say that eventually somebody's going to have to pay this bill. And mm. if the Tories go into an election in 2024 with an incredibly rising debt-to-GDP ratio, which is already near 100%, with a rising borrowing burden and a higher deficit and not very high growth with higher interest rates, that's not a great ticket on which to campaign to be the next prime minister with this series of economic indicators all flashing red. The Tories have managed to burnish their credentials as the party of credible economic management, something that they've held for over a decade. But that could all be lost very, very quickly. So I think the sustainability and the longevity of trustonomics is not guaranteed at all. I think we should be thinking about whether she will have to reverse a lot of the Britannia unchained rhetoric when push comes to shove and she's confronted with the reality of politics and also the reality of an economy which is undergoing a huge amount of stress. That's so interesting. So the party might not want to hang on to these policies for long. What about the Treasury, the people who will be implementing these, these policies? There's been a lot of rhetoric about fighting Treasury orthodoxy. How is it all going down there? Quite a big part of trustonomics is the idea that the government actually stands in the way 
of unleashing the creative forces of the economy. And for Liz Trust, government in that sense is represented, one, the civil service and some of the institutions of our government, including the Bank of England. I think one of the most iconoclastic things that she has done since becoming prime minister is to sack maybe one of the most powerful civil servants in the country called Sir Tom Scholar. And this decision to remove him has been very heavily criticised by parts of the civil service, by also by other politicians. A government wouldn't come in and on the first day sack the head of the Her Majesty's Defence Forces, the chief of the defence staff. Uh, so I think that they are behaving improperly towards the civil service. In Liz Truss's world, the Treasury holds back governments of the day from implementing policies. It's basically obsessed with the idea that the country will have to eventually pay back its debts. The Treasury's job often is to say no when a government department comes asking or begging for money. Um, and she thinks that the Treasury has been stuck to this very status, status quo idea about what is good economic policy. And she wants to rip that up. And Tom Scholar, I guess, is, I think, the first symbolic victim of this revolution. And she also, again, wants to shift the power of economic policy from the Treasury into number 10. So we will see, I think, a lot of tensions playing out between Whitehall and number 10. If this doesn't go to plan, you know, what's the worst case scenario? If, if whatever's announced in a year's time hasn't gone as, as they would have hoped, how bad might things get? If we do not generate the level of growth 2.5 or whatever the Chancellor wants to create, then the Tories will have to fight a 2024 election with an economy where all of its major signals again are flashing red. It's going to raise very real questions about who picks up the bill. And it's not inconceivable that in the UK that will have to be a Labour government who will have to come in and fix this mess. Or whether Liz Truss will not be in a position where she could even fight an election for the Tory party and whether the party becomes so unhappy with what's happened to the state of the economy that they might have to ensure that somebody else is leading them into that election in 2024. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast Brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, economics editor for The Times, Mehreen Khan. You can find all of Mehreen's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print. The producer today was Oliver Adamson, with production assistance from Constance Kampfner. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.